0: This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. This sound is unmistakable.
1: Maybe you find it kind of lulling, like I do, since it signifies the end of a trip to the grocery store. You've found all the things on your list, and now you get to just stand there and zone out for a second, or flip through a Bassett magazine while the checkout person does the work.
0: That's our new producer, Katie Mingle. I myself find that sound a bit anxiety-inducing, since it's also the sound of the total that I'm going to have to pay going up and up and up and up.
2: When I go to the grocery store and check out, I'm utterly amazed at how well the skaters can read barcodes. No, I don't tell the checkout people. My wife always did. My husband here is the one that invented that barcode. And they just kind of look at you as if to say, yeah, I believe that. Of course, today, they would look at you as if to say, you mean there was a time they didn't have a barcode?
0: It's hard to imagine now a world without barcodes, a world without George Laura.
2: Well, hello. I'm George J. Laura. I'm the one that invented the UPC Barcode and Symbol in 1973.
1: Now, some of you might be saying to yourselves, I thought Joseph Woodland invented the barcode.
0: And if you're saying that to yourself, you are a nerd, and I love you for it. And just hold your nerd horses, because we're getting to Woodland right now.
1: It started the way a lot of things start, with people trying to make more money.
2: The uh, grocery business decided that they needed some way to reduce their overhead.
1: One of the main places they felt they were losing money was the checkout line.
2: They came up with the idea of having some kind of a scannable code.
1: Which would move people more quickly through the line. One of the first people that started working on it was an engineer named Joseph Woodland. After working on the Manhattan Project, Woodland moved on to develop an innovative way to produce elevator music. He was jamming on this project, probably set to make a whole bunch of money until, and this is according to Woodland's New York Times obituary, his father forbid him from getting into the industry because it was controlled by the mob.
0: So Woodland moved on from elevator music to barcodes.
1: He was trying to come up with a symbol that, when scanned, would translate to a series of numbers that a computer could use to identify a product. So one day, he's sitting on the beach in Miami, Florida.
0: So the legend goes.
1: And Woodland's thinking about his days in the Boy Scouts and Morse code.
0: As one tends to do on the beach.
1: And he's kind of absent-mindedly drawing in the sand with his fingers, when suddenly he looks down and he's got it.
0: He's dragged his four fingers through the sand in the shape of concentric circles.
1: Instead of dot 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 dash dash dash, he thinks, I can use skinny and wide lines. Bullseye. Bullseye. The very first barcodes were in the shape of a bullseye. Actually, they didn't call them barcodes yet. Woodland's invention was called a classifying apparatus and method.
0: I'm really glad that we don't call them that anymore. That was 1948, and then for about 20 years, the bullseye idea gathered dust. The scanners and other equipment needed to put the system in place were just too expensive for any of it to be feasible.
1: Fast forward to 1973. The technology is now a bit more affordable, and a group of supermarket executives led by a guy named Alan Haberman are like, okay, barcode or bust, we're doing this. By that time, there were a few other designs out there, but none were perfect. So they put together a list of qualities that their ideal barcode would have and asked 14 different companies to come up with a proposal.
2: Could be no larger than one and a half square inches. Had to have a good enough depth of field that could read about a foot and a half above the scanner. Had to be omnidirectional.
1: That's George Lohrer again. He was working at IBM at the time, which was one of the companies competing to make the best barcode.
0: And most people thought, that a circular design like Woodland's would probably work best because of the way the scanners worked.
2: In those days, just about every scanner was a single line. And you can just picture that if you had a single line and it was going in the direction of the bar, it would not read all the bars.
1: Woodland's original circular design solved this because it could be read from any direction. That meant the checkout person didn't have to take your bag of Cheetos and turn it in just the right way before it could pass over the scanner.
0: But George didn't think the bullseye symbol would work. I couldn't support
2: that as the solution to what the grocery industry wanted. Because to me, there was no way that it would fulfill their specifications. Uh, My integrity just would not let me come up with with a bunch of bull.
1: So George went back to the drawing table.
2: My wife said I came back and I would work on it day and night, come back at night. And again, most of us was thinking, arithmetic, uh, trying to prove that this would work. Uh, Also, I have to admit, I had to disprove that some of the others wouldn't work.
1: He ultimately came up with a rectangular barcode that fit more code into less space, which was crucial since grocery manufacturers were already grumbling about having to make room for this new symbol on their packaging. But there was still the issue of the one-line scanner.
2: Somehow we got the idea that if we used an X for the scan pattern, Uh, which could be developed very easily with a pair of mirrors.
1: Then the barcode could be read by the scanner no matter which way it was oriented as it passed.
0: So even though Woodland came up with the original idea of using lines of various widths, George Lohr did more than just change that shape from a circle to a rectangle. He improved on the symbol, the code behind the symbol, and the scanners that read the symbol. Even Joe Woodland thought so.
2: Joe Woodland was very enthusiastic. He worked with me. In fact, he wrote the actual proposal for the submission to the grocery industry. But it was my uh, invention of the particular symbol and barcode that we see today.
1: The Symbol Selection Committee unanimously voted for George Lorer's rectangular symbol and code. They called it the Universal Product Code, or UPC. And a year later, in 1974, a pack of Wrigley's chewing gum became the first item to ever be scanned with the UPC barcode.
2: If barcodes hadn't been invented, the entire uh, layout and the architecture of commerce would have been different. Uh, The impacts are very difficult
0: to overestimate. Uh, My name is Sanjay Sarma. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT.
1: Sanjay Sarma has also worked with an organization called GS1. That stands for Global Standards 1. And if you need a barcode on your product, you have to go through GS1 to get it.
0: Imagine if
2: the telephone numbers weren't standardized, right? And you didn't have area codes, and two people could have the same phone number. You know, you need standards.
0: When barcodes became the standard, they didn't just make checkout lines faster. They allowed stores to keep track of huge amounts of inventory and to collect data on what we were buying. Data they could use to keep us coming back for more. Without barcodes. Uh, super might not exist. Uh, but equally, you know, a small store might need more employees. To
2: run it, it's like the grease uh, that that makes the machine run. It's one of the key, you know, elements of um, of efficiency in our capitalistic system.
0: And when you put it like that, you can see why, for some people, the barcode has come to represent everything they hate about capitalism and consumerism. You can get wrapped candies of every kind, bubble gum, lollipops, fun-size candy bars,
1: just a dollar eighty nine.
0: When I was a punk kid, if a band's album had a barcode on it, we knew they were complete sellouts. It ain't the barcode's
3: fault, but it's become the symbol or the glyph of technology we're afraid of or don't understand, or being a cog in a wheel in a larger uh, monolithic machine. The Matrix, if you will.
0: Oh, I will, Jerry Whiting.
3: My name is Jerry Whiting. I am the founder of Azalea Software here in Seattle, Washington. Uh, I've been writing software that prints barcodes for 25 years now. They aren't bad. They aren't good. They're just tools. But most people look at them and don't even know where
0: to start. So let's demystify for a minute and look at what's inside the barcode. Again, what we're talking about here is the UPC barcode that George Lohrer invented. This is the barcode that you and I and everyone in the world has had the most interaction with.
1: The UPC barcode is divided into two halves. It's, it's actually two barcodes sitting right next to each other. You can see this visually because there are these longer bars that come down in the middle and on each side. Those are called the guard bars. The guard bars tell the scanner that the code is starting and ending.
3: The left half of the barcode tells you who the manufacturer is, and the right half tells you which particular
2: product it is.
1: And this was something I didn't realize. The scanner is reading both the white and the dark lines.
2: To understand the scanner, just consider yourself in a dark room where the wall behind you has bars painted on it. And you took a flashlight and shined it over your head across the bars. You would see the room get a little lighter when you were over the white bars, and it would get dark when it was over the dark bars.
0: Black lines that don't reflect the laser light back to the scanner register as a 1. White lines equal 0. There are actually 95 evenly spaced columns on a UPC barcode. A thick black line is actually... A bunch of ones right next to each other. The computer adds all that together, and you get a string of 12 numbers.
2: This number goes to the computer. The computer now looks up in its table to get the information, such as what is the product, how much they're charging for it, but that is not in the barcode. The only thing that's in the barcode is where the computer should look.
1: This number is also printed below the barcode just in case the scanner isn't working, which for me really makes the whole mystery a little anticlimactic. I mean, it's it's right there.
3: So when most people until recently thought of barcodes, they thought of something that was a combination of bars and stripes. Um, more recently, um, two-dimensional barcodes, which are, they look like crossword puzzles, um, have uh, emerged. The most popular being QR
0: barcodes, quick response, that are scanned by cell phones. We've all seen these, and maybe a few of us have actually bothered to pull out our cell phones and download the app required to scan them.
1: Yeah, there's something about them that I find kind of lame or annoying. You know, it's like, no, chilies. I don't want more info on the Bloomin' Onion.
0: Well, if you did, you might know that the Bloomin' Onion is from Outback.
1: So anyway, I googled, why are QR codes lame? And I got a bunch of articles basically saying they're actually really useful. They're just being misused.
0: Mostly by advertisers who've just started slapping them on every single thing.
1: But Jerry Whiting, he still believes in them.
0: The
3: nice thing about QR barcodes is they are not just a a lookup number to an external database. Yes, it can be a chunk of text, it can be a URL, it can be a whole lot of different things, but there is no central authority that tells you what or how to do anything.
1: Meaning you don't have to go through GS1 to get a QR code, which lets people do stuff like make a giant picture of Amy Goodman's face entirely out of QR codes.
0: This is my QR code, Amy Goodman Portrait, made with 2,304 unique QR codes that link to nine years of Democracy Now! videos. Besides the QR code, Laura and Woodland's original barcodes have spawned a bunch of other barcodes. They're used for all sorts of things.
1: There's code 128, which is mostly used for packaging and shipping. There's PostNet, which is used by the post office to sort mail. There are barcodes that use radio frequencies to send out data. They're called RFID tags, and they aren't really barcodes at all. They just get put in the same category because, like barcodes, they're being used to keep track of inventory.
0: With a grocery cart full of RFID-tagged items, one could conceivably wheel their cart through a big hoop that would read all the contents all at once, basically eliminating the checkout line entirely and allowing more people to pass through stores even more quickly so that we can all buy more stuff.
1: Barcodes help us keep track of prescriptions, library books, luggage, endangered animals. There are so many barcodes on so many things that, according to Jerry Whiting,
3: when future archaeologists come across remnants of our backward-ass civilization and they stumble across a barcode, they're going to assign it religious significance if they don't understand the supply chain.
2: We had no idea how far it was going to go. We, we thought it would stay just within the grocery industry.
0: But of course it didn't just stay in the grocery industry. It actually went way beyond that, all the way to conspiracy. There is, in fact, a silly conspiracy theory that all barcodes have the number of the beast, 666, encoded into them.
1: Yeah, it has to do with those guard bars that come at the beginning, middle, and end of every barcode. And it's basically true that there are three sixes coded into the guard bars. The answer to why is a bit technical. You can read about it on George Lohrer's personal website in the FAQ section, if you want. But as Exhibit B, I submit... George himself.
2: Well, hello, I'm George J. Laura.
1: After we were done with our interview, he was talking a little bit more about his job at IBM.
2: And then when I'd come home at night, i go, oh, I had a tough day. Well, my poor wife was taking care of four kids.
1: And then he started talking about his wife <laughs> and his kids.
2: She had the hard job, believe me. She gave up her career, which was a teaching career, in order to take care of the kids. And believe me, we are so proud of those kids. Really, they are. You just couldn't ask for better kids. And this is because my wife spent her career raising those kids. I'm just so lucky.
1: So, I don't know. Does that sound like a Satan worshiper to you guys?
2: My daughter has a bachelor's
0: degree. 99% Invisible was produced this, this week by Katie Mingle with Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. Dares. Special thanks, thanks to Jenny Morgan for production help. We are a project of 91.7 Local Public Radio Spain. KALW in and San Francisco and produced at the offices of ArcSign, an architecture firm in beautiful downtown a Oakland, California.
2: ...degree in engineering from Charlotte. Our youngest son has a Ph.D., from state
0: Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com slash invisible for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. We all tweet. You can find us. We have a Tumblr. It's fantastic. But if you want a link to George Lohr's self-published autobiography called Engineering Was Fun! Go to 99pi.org.
1: Radiotopia.